How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today our special guest is steve carter Steve is a pastor, speaker, author, podcast host, and the former lead teaching pastor of Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago, Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, and Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, which is where we first met, which is crazy to say now, 11, maybe 12 years ago. Yeah, over a decade ago. Steve hosts the Craft and Character podcast where he helps people get better at the art of communication while ensuring their character always leads the way. Steve has this deep and undeniable desire to bring Jesus into every conversation and space he occupies. He also co-hosts one of the top sports podcasts, the Home Team Podcast, with NFL players Trey Burton and Sam Ocho. Is that right? Is that how you say that? Yep. Sam Ocho which Same unpacks object. the intersection between faith, culture, sports, and family. And his latest book, which we will be talking about today, is The Thing Beneath the Thing. And when you listen to this, this book is already out, so find it wherever books are sold. Um, I got it at the Barnes & Noble here in Honolulu, which is sick to know I can just walk in there and make that happen with our relationship. And Steve currently lives in Phoenix with his wife, Sarah, and their two kids, um, I could say more, but Steve, let's just stop there, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally today and for the listening community as well. Definitely, man. Hey, I, I, uh, obviously love you and it's been fun just to kind of watch from afar, just, uh, all the good that you continue to put out. And, uh, I remember the first time, uh, I saw that you were dropping this podcast and I love the title, the title just right from the jump got me the church needs therapy. And I'm like, yes, it does. And the conversations you've been having, um, yeah, I just love the way that your mind works and who you are and just a big fan of you, bro. So thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Uh, you know, what I think what's good for the people is, you know, so often there's the content we say, but I mean, even when you think about the title of your own podcast, The Craft and the Character, you know, what we say always and inevitably flows out of who we are. You know, our life itself is the medium. Our life is the message, right? You cannot fully connect with or understand what a person's saying without knowing some of the depth or at least some of the story of where it's where it's coming from and what it's being said out of. So if you could introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally, like if we zoom out a bit, what are some of the bigger picture movements in your life, specifically when it comes to your relationship with the church that help make sense of where you are today? You know, some people it's like kid, family, pastor, church, youth group, some it's much later. Like what are some of those bigger movements that help us see your commitment in your life with Christ today? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Southern California. Um, my parents didn't go to church. Uh, my mom actually um, put me in a parochial school. It's like one of those like 
Christian schools that have a church connected to it. It's like preschool all the way up to community college. It feels like, and um, I was a seventh grader and didn't go to church. Um, but I was playing basketball and with the high schoolers and was always just trying to play with older kids. And um, these two juniors in high school, Dominic and Nathan, uh, they went by the name dominate, um, which is just awesome. And uh, <laughs> they were like, the, they were the first Jesus people I, I ever mm. I ever recognized. There's just something different about them. They love sports. They were funny. They were fun. They, they were leaders. And you know, if I, if I looked up to anybody at that school, it was those two guys. And I just remember um, Dominic coming up to me one day after playing basketball and saying, Hey Carter, do you want to learn how to dominate life? And I just was like, yeah. And for the next like six, seven months, those two just started to pick me up after school. We go to in and out and, and I didn't have language for it, but they were discipling me. They're asking me mm. questions. And, and, and so that, that really was my kind of like introduction to faith. Mm. Um, got baptized uh, a few months later. And I mean, I was starting to go to church by myself. And, and really in a lot of ways, I just wanted to be like Dom and Nate. I wanted mm. to be like those two. Um, and then I think, I think the next probably big movement for my story was just the people that God has put in my life. I, I, I am so privileged um, for so many reasons, but I would say first and foremost is um, the women and men that God's put in my life. Um, and so Dominic and Nathan being one of them, um, Hal Schrader, who um, was just the greatest voice in my life. Um, he passed five years ago on a motorcycle accident, wow. um, but he was an Anabaptist uh, youth pastor. I mean, he was, he was. I think he was the one a long time ago you told me that because at that point when when you and I were no, like knew first knew each other, Emergent was like a big brand, and you're like, this oh, yeah. guy was Emergent before Emergent. Oh, before. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he was in a, he was affirming as like a youth pastor this little Christian church. I mean, like there were things that like he, he just believed. I mean, I remember the first time walking into his office and I'm like a 10th grader and there's a picture of Ronald Reagan and it's, and he's upside down with like a thumb, like <laughs> through like his junk. And like, I'm like, bro, you, bro, what's up with Ronald Reagan? And I'd like move the picture up and he's like, Oh no, 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 don't do that. Like leave it that way. No, like, I, re I, re I actually, I remember you telling me that like 10 years ago. <laughs> bro, yeah, so dude, I, I was like, I was like, I, you, we're in Oren, we're like in Ventura County. Like this is like Ronald Reagan country. You can't mm. do that. And he's like, and Jimmy Carter was the Christian. Ronald Reagan wasn't. And I'm like, <laughs> what? So like this, this was like my like upbringing of mm. having a recognition that there was, there was a, and again, I didn't have language for it. There mm. wasn't a machine. There was a industrial complex when it came mm. to evangelicalism. So after, during this time is when I had the privilege to baptize both my parents, my mom, wow. my senior year of high school, my dad, my sophomore year of college, my dad comes out of the baptismal waters. And again, this is like a, this is like a, uh, father, son, holy Bible kind of church. And, mm. and my dad's like, I feel like I heard God tell me we're supposed to sell everything and move to grand rapids. And wow. he's like, does God work that way? And I'm like, I'm like, well, what do, you, what do you think God wants you to do? And he's like, he wants me to restore a relationship with my folks. So wow. This is 90, this is 1998. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm like redshirting at Cal State Florida in basketball. Like I was super excited, set to be the backup point guard the next year. And I'm seeing God work in my family. And, and that we, we end up selling everything. We moved to Grand Rapids 
and uh, I knew nobody. So from there, I, I called my best friend, Tom. No, you called, you called up Dom and Nate. You're like, Dom, <laughs> yeah. you're like, I'm scared. I'm scared. What do I do? What do I do? Uh, uh, people aren't doing stuff on Sundays because of Christian reform, like movement. Like it, it was, a, it was a, a step backwards in so many ways mm. come from Ventura County, Orange County. And I, and I called my friend Tom and he's like, hey, there's this guy named Rob Bell. He was my like youth intern when, when he was at seminary at Fuller. And I heard he planted a church, Mars something. So I show up to a homeschool building, which was where the beginning of Mars Hill was. And I can't get in because there's a fire marshal who's saying there's too many people in a homeschool building, which is crazy that there's a homeschool building. It should just be in a home, but like they actually <laughs> this massive building, which is called a school. But anyways, so we, we show up the next week. I get turned away. The third week I have to sneak in and it probably was like, I don't know, week 11 of the church, week 10 of the church. And everyone's just opening up their Bible to like Leviticus 10 or 11. He was just going chapter by chapter. And I was like, who is this guy? And I ended up getting connected to Rob and just a great relationship uh, began and obviously has continued for, I mean, over 20 some years. Mm. And um, that led to kind of me moving from a, being a film major to going, mm. I want to do what this guy's doing. Wow. And he, uh, he had been, uh, I think in Turkey or Israel and someone had pulled him aside and said, Hey, Jesus didn't change the world by speaking to the masses. He changed the world by having disciples. So who are you pouring your life into? Mm. And I'll never forget. I was actually at rock Harbor, uh, interning and he called me and he said, Hey, I want you to graduate as fast as you can. You can come live in my basement. I'll teach you everything I know. I'll open up my life. And let's change the world one West Michigan at a time. And so mm. in 2002, I moved out there, lived in his basement, um, went to counseling, studied with him, and really got a front row seat to his life that was exploding. Obviously, Mars was exploding. I think he was even beginning to come to grips with like the things that he was believing and saying. And, um, <clears throat> and, but I was there till like 2009, and I feel like there I learned a compelling why for mm. the kingdom of God, Jewish roots. Like it's more about questions than about answers. I'm just, just the way in which uh, the ethos of Mars and the ethos of Rob, it was just a, an absolute gift. The combination of he and Hal were unbelievable for me. Um, but my wife was from Arizona. I was from California. We'd had our first and, um, and I, I knew Rob wasn't going to be there forever. And so mm. there was a part of me that was like, I, my job, I was here to change the world one West Michigan at a time. So let me go take this somewhere. So I went to Orange County and that's where we connected at Rock Harbor. And I worked with, you know, a great, great communicator named Mike Erie. And really he, he in so many ways was like the subversive Chuck Smith, you know what I mean? From Calvary mm. Chapel. I mean, just a exegetical, but he was, he brought philosophy, really brought a lot of the stuff from Mars and Rob and, uh, but just, did it in a way that I felt like was the antithesis of Orange County. And I just mm. learned a lot from him. I loved him. Um, but I think what was hard was I came from Mars Hill, West Michigan, which was very conservative culturally, but Mars was quite progressive in comparison. Sure. And I, and I came to, to California and I realized, Oh my goodness, like it's in many ways, progressive in art and in creative and the church feels like it's holding on for dear life mm. and i remember my first like my first like meeting someone like asked questions about like the emergent church and i'm like we're still talking about this like mm. it was just like 
a bit like drenched in fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but I, I would say, I feel like I got introduced to the Holy spirit there. Very mm-hmm. like connected to John Wimber and, and vineyard had a huge impact and HTB on rock Harbor. And then from there, um, I went out to Willow and I feel like I got the chance to, to serve with a mentor, um, at the time, Bill Hybels. And I had been, I had, and still am, uh, was good friends with his son-in-law. Uh, Aaron and you know had the chance just to to kind of go to a job that in many ways I didn't I didn't think I was uh, deserving of but um, I love the Midwest I love Chicagoland um, and I and there was just a unique unique favor on me there and um, it kind of led to me being there for about six seven years and um, really being handed the baton. Um, it got a little bit dicey because allegations uh, came out against my mentor uh, from prominent women, um, abuse of power, sexual abuse. It just got to the point where um, things weren't handled in the way that I thought they should be. I'm not saying I did everything the right way. Um, there's things I wish would have been radically different, um, but I just felt like uh, for integrity's sake, um, just needed to stand with the women. So, um, but I will say like each of those three environments, Mars Hill, this compelling why rock Harbor, a compelling how, but then at Willow man, I, I learned the, like what you can do. I mean, I mean, they, the, the resourcing, what you can do with resourcing, what you can do when you can move a whole group of people in a, in a certain direction, like how you can rally them. And, and in many ways, the, these three have become just powerful alma maters in my mm-hmm. in my story and both all of them have like pluses and minuses um mm-hmm. but um i'm i'm looked back now um quite fondly um the difficulty of the exit out of willow has led us to the desert and i i'm an achiever i'm a three on the enneagram the easier thing for me would have been just go find a, a job go run to something Mm. to not have to deal with my pain, deal Mm. with the sadness and the disappointment of Mm. um, how this ended and the reason it ended. And I just felt like I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt like God say, just go to the desert and wait for instructions. And so that's kind of what we, what we've been doing. Um, It's just been trying to really get to the end of my own personal ego, uh, Mm. really get to the the end of my own achievements. You have this moment where, you know, you, you probably, I probably am, uh, will never speak at a room that's larger than Willow, 7,200 seats on a regular basis. I'll probably that's never insane. speak at a church that has the budget that Willow had while I was there. Um, I'll probably never speak at a place that is as cool and exciting as Mars Hill was or mm. Rock Harbor was back in the day. And, and for the first time ever, Kevin, I feel like I'm okay with it. I don't think mm. I was, I could have been in my mid thirties. But I think at 41, I've just got to this point where I'm like, this is, this is it. And there's, a, there's something new emerging. So that's yeah, a little no, bit of no, who I amazing. am. Yeah, that's a long intro, but that's kind of been the journey that I've been on. So Yeah, no, the, that's, that's so great. There's, there's so many things that I immediately think of. One, the event I was just at in New York City, Aaron was there too. Cool. Yeah, so even in some like like some storyteller from like the moth was there and he had us do exercises. So me and Aaron were actually like paired up in that no moment. Way. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, and he was like one of the first guys I had on the podcast. Like last yeah. year, he was like one of my second or third guests. So he's awesome. And 
immediately what strikes me about your story, especially considering the time we're in is I think one of the greatest challenges and why things are so hard for people and even people of faith right now is things with COVID have been so disembodied, disconnected and extracted from actual relationships. So it's like all you can see, like you can scroll and just all you see is injustice. All you see is polarization. All you see is the hard parts of life. And when you, and that's all real. But when you see the tragic nature of life without being directly connected in spaces where you experience actual, the energy of resurrection, the presence of another person, the spirit and the way the spirit works through people and the joy of a community, that's where that isolation just gets so dangerous. And that story is such a, those movements all speak to the simple power of relationships and connections. You know, it was all these two guys who looked out for me, another mentor and how this pastor over here, this community at Rock Harbor, like it's everything, no matter how great podcasts are, no matter how many amazing teachers there are, like the life is always uniquely and quietly in the spirits flowing through actual spaces and places and people. And I think your story just speaks to that so powerfully. And that's what our spirits are so drawn to. But I think during the last year and a half, it's we don't have as easily, we don't have as much access to those kinds of spaces. So it's tough. So that even for me is such a good, man, that story is people. That story is places. That story is concrete. That story is flesh and blood in, in the, how the spirit works in those environments. And yeah, I love just starting off because those are all such three unique experiences too that you've had. All yeah. different and just unique as a whole to be there. I think during the times you were in each one of those places too. Um, before we talk about the content of the book, so people listening, the thing beneath the thing, I'm going to keep repeating that. So you are continue to be reminded of it before we talk about the content of the book for you personally, what, what were the origins of the book within you? Like what was the engine that really got the whole thing going? Cause around 40 you've written, you have opportunities. You probably could have written a lot of different things and got, gotten it published. Why that? Why now? What was, what was the energy that was all born out of for you? Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think as someone who was pretty efficient yet wildly disconnected, um, I think someone who is really good at achieving, um, but couldn't access the deeper. Um, and I, I think in many ways, you know, part of my childhood, um, that tenderness and that sensitivity, there was just shame connected to it. And so I, I had just kind of stuffed those emotions and I could manage them for a while. I couldn't. And, you know, when I got to Mars Hill um, at a young age, you know, I, I was I was kind of put on stage and I was given opportunities. And um, and I think I, I was realizing, man, I I've I've got some talent here from people giving me chances. I don't feel like I have the character to sustain it. Mm. And so I think there, there was stuff there that was just churning. Um, you know, I married a very, very insightful woman. And, uh, you know, I think in many ways I, I couldn't keep up with her depth. I couldn't keep up with her questions. And, you know, in many ways, I think I just started to kind of 
She's Bounce. like, but how does that make you feel? You're like, what? Uh, yeah, exactly. like, what do you I'm mean? Like, you, 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 you it went, like, it you, went great. What do you, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah. How did it make me? Feel? Totally. Like, I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't access that stuff. And so I started going to counseling. We started going to counseling, and I think part of Mars Hill was really great for me because it, it really was a place. You know, the directions of that church were we go, you know, backwards, the text, we go forwards on a journey, we go inwards in pursuit of shalom and wholeness, you know, um, with words, we do it together, you know, outwards serving upwards in like mm. worship and celebration. Anyways, that inwards though, I never, I never been taught how to do that. There was no map. It was like, shame that stuff. Don't do that. Mm. So that became this process but then I think as, as I started to pastor people, people kept coming into my office and I, I think in my mind, um, they were wrestling with, why do I keep doing this? Mm. And in, and in many ways it's like Romans seven fifteen, like I do not understand what I do. Mm. The good I want to do. I just don't do the thing I hate. I do. And you know, when I say something dumb or I, I don't follow through on a commitment, I can't just quote that first sentence of Paul and say, babe, I'm sorry. I do not understand what I do. She's like, start understanding. You know what I mean? Like, figure <laughs> but it out. You can try. <laughs> you can try, right? And I, and, but I think, I think what I've realized is there's so many people, including myself, who just found themselves wildly driven and even more disconnected. Mm. And, 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 and it just was leading to dysfunction. And, mm. and so I just was driven by the problem or the question, why do we do what we do? Or better said, why do I do what I do? And, you know, Rob gave me that phrase, the thing beneath the thing after I called him one day and <laughs> told him what had happened. Uh, when I just, uh, just kind of lost myself in a moment and it was about all this other stuff that was going on in my, my life. I kind of began the book with that story and, and Rob just said, welcome to the thing beneath the thing, the endless mm. discovery of what's really going on. Mm. And, and that's just, um, that's it for me. And I, I feel like for me, it's just been that process of trying to get clearer about why do, why do I want this? Why am I driven to this? Why mm. am I afraid of this? Just trying mm. to be more connected to the heart. So that's the heart mm. of the book. Yeah. No, I love it. Uh, and when he told you that, you're all, can I like make a note of this? And then I'm going to use that like 20 years. <laughs> well, dude, well, that's, that's the crazy thing because right when he said that, I was like, that's just genius. And then, and then I just started using that phrase, you know, like when we were mm. at Rock Harbor, I would say, okay, well, what's the thing that you think? What's underneath that? What's a, mm. And it just, it kind of like just took on a life of its own. I would teach that at Willow Creek and people were like that phrase. I'd, I'd be walking in a coffee shop. I'd hear someone say, what's the thing beneath the thing? And I was like, <laughs> this thing has legs, you know? So, uh, so it's been really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that phrase, it's such a, it's a catchy phrase. It's a simple phrase, but it captures not just one thing to remember, but an opening to an entire different path because it's an opening to, to begin the path towards the depths of why do we do what we do? Because, you know, the, the thing is we think it's up here, but you know, especially with your experience now with people, you're like, the thing is this, but really it's down there. And how do we create a path towards getting there? What are the, what are the questions we ask? What are the things getting in the way? You know, the defense mechanisms we have that prevent us from seeing those things. So that phrase holds together an entirely different movement of our life. You know what I'm saying? Like it really totally. does though. Totally. And I have, if once, once things go through and I have manuscripts to be able to share in, 
in the, in the first book that I was telling you about, I have a chapter in there called the thing after the thing. Oh, that's awesome. So, that's so, awesome. Uh, so I'm not going to, so I'm not going to tell you what it is now you, that, that that's for later, but I'm like, you know, I'm mentioning the phrase cause that phrase probably from you, you know, back in the day yeah. has always stayed with me too. So I was like, you know, people are familiar with the thing beneath the thing. There's also this thing after the thing. So that, that's I'll let you know when, when, when the time is right. The remix bro. When I, here's something, you know, you mentioned, you know, this endless discovery of what's really going on. You know, how you first got that phrase from Rob and the journey it leads, led you on, keeps leading you on. But you mentioned how at Mars, it's like, man, I got on the stage quick. Somebody could recognize in you like, man, Steve has this gift. Steve has this way with people. Steve, people can recognize in you the things you're able to do, which is awesome. To have anybody name that and call you into that further is like, one of the most powerful things, right? Here's something I've thought about over the years or experienced pastoring, which gets at some of this that I want to hear you speak to. <clears throat> there have been young men who have been a part of Imagine or still are today. And as I first get to know them, and they're probably, you know, like three-ish energy, you know, maybe one high energy driven, gifted, talented carries. Like you can see in them like this, this kid's special or he can do this. And seeing them in their mid-20s or so being talented and gifted and knowing how they can be led, I, I can look at them and think if this kid was in other church environments, they could be led down a path of success in ministry <clears throat> that would be highly productive for a long time, but would work against their well-being in the future. And I could see this person could have a major impact in seven to 10 years could be very dangerous to themselves and to those around them. Because I can see I can put them on that, do this, drive that. But because I'm starting to sense the thing beneath the thing, there's a lot more there. You know, you kind of make a decision as a leader where I'm like, I can see how environments could foster a life of success that could create an environment where they have no access to the thing beneath the thing. So it's like, you could be better for me right now and building my thing, but that would actually be worse for you in the future. How do I then serve you, give you space, start leading you on that thing, which might mean less quote unquote productivity to build whatever I'm building, but I just sense the best thing for me to do is to actually introduce you to this earlier, which means we're going to pull back a little right now. Like, can you see that? Can you speak to that dynamic a little? How do leaders foster newer environments where we're not just putting people on stages who are the most charismatic, but thinking about their well-being and their futures as a whole. Yeah, that's, that, man, that is so, so important. I mean, that's, and that's a question that's not asked, you know, um, I was fortunate because again, the mentors, the people, mm -hmm. um, having someone like Rob, um, having someone like Mike Erie, uh, those, those, to, I mean, they were both in counseling. I mean, Rob brought me to his counseling meetings. So I, even though I didn't necessarily have a map, he was showing me mm. by, hey, if you want to have something to say, you have to do the hard work internally to find the thing to say. Mm. And, it, and it, I didn't understand it at first. Like I literally thought he was going to introduce me to a vault of books and in some ways, yeah, there were some books I hadn't heard of, but it really wasn't. It was mm. the actual 
awareness and depth in the places he was willing to go, which mm-hmm. I thought was really, really helpful. Second thing is right now we are fascinated, you know, like the nineties and early two thousands, it was all about strength finders. What are your strengths? Mm-hmm. What are your strengths? Right. And it's great. I think it's awesome. I, I can tell you my five or six top strengths. Then it went mm-hmm. to Myers Briggs. I could tell you, I could tell you what I am. And I have a friend who was the executive producer of, um, of Oprah and her bonus was connected to how, when she met someone within 30 seconds, could she identify their Myers-Briggs and tell Oprah because that allowed Oprah to know how to interact with the person. Wow. What you think is amazing? That's crazy. Right. But it, like we became like fixated with, Oh, he's an ENFP. He's an ISTJ, blah, blah, blah. Then it became Enneagram. And I liked Enneagram. I think the Enneagram has been one of the most helpful tools, but here's the thing. The piece of it that really, really matters to me is where is your crazy? Where is Mm. your brokenness? Mm. Where are you susceptible to yourself, Mm. to sabotage, to self-sabotage? You know, we both know this from playing hoops. Like (laughs) if we've got a big man running on a fast break, we're not giving them the ball. You know, mm. at half court, having because they're not. That's not where they, we set them up to win. I think what ends up happening though is we put people up on stages without helping them be connected to what's driving them or the mm. pain that's driving them. Mm. And so, for me, I just i i really i really want to help people understand what what triggers them and what's underneath that. And the last thing I'd say is. Um, if you're going to put a young person up in front of people, you you have to triple their counseling and spiritual director budget. Interesting. I, I and I and I think that you know when I was at Willow, we watched a couple of moral failings happen, and some of them were emotional, some of them were physical and sexual in nature. Um, and I, I remember like going to our HR person, going, "Do not, I'm scared, mm. because this is a pressure cooker." Like I, I've, I've upped my counseling. Like I don't, I'm just, I'm afraid. And I think, I think that's a piece that, um, you know, for me is if you're going to put someone on stage, what are, what are the practices they have in their life that they can handle what's going to come? And that could be criticism. That could be like comparison. That could be Mm. success. That could be failure, Mm. but all of that, um, I've seen, gosh, there's there's other things that have to be uh, in play if we're actually going to love someone well and not and have them finish well, mm. and not just throw them out there, baptism by fire, as people like to say, and watch them burn up mm. and burn out. And yeah. I just like it's it it's it's frustrated me watching, and at times even I did it back then. Um, but watching that now going, knowing what I know now going, there's a, you have to care about the whole, and you said it, the well-being, the well-being mm. today and the well-being in 10 to 15 years. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so good. That's interesting to even think of the, the practical direct connection of if you're putting people in places and you think they can serve the community, well, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we do that, here's this other part of it in a practical way that helps create a more holistic path to not just ministry success, but a life that actually works. Yeah. Like it's really weird to think about that as a pastor, how challenging it is to make your life work Yep. as a whole, yep. you know, that that's been, 
that was one of my like most surprising discoveries, church planning, moving back out here and doing it. it was like a year and a half or so in. I'm like, oh, this is not an easy thing to enjoy. Yeah. This you could go on. This is not an easy thing to stay whole in. You know, there's I think one of the like I think one of the you know, when Andy Crouch talks about leadership, he talks about, you know, leadership as this like invisible burden you carry, something nobody understands, but it's this thing that you have, you know, when, when you're leading. And what I've experienced, I think one of the greatest challenges when you talk about the pressure cooker for leaders is it's not the active work of ministry that's the most challenging. It is the passive carrying of your role in your life as a whole. You know, for a church planner, it's when you're at home or you're a pastor, you're at home, you have 33 different people you're supposed to text back or, you know, I mean, I don't have that many, but other people could, thankfully, I'm not that good at texting. I have three and I'm already like, did I do that? Did I send it? But it's the passive carrying of it, not knowing where I stand with people. That triggers so much what do we what do we do when we don't know where we stand with people? Do we move in and win over? Do I withdraw because I don't know what the answer? Like it's the environment as a whole that we carry within that makes it so hard. And I think having like with everything we're seeing right now, I think there is this moment where like there there it is there's a new pastoral imagination that's required to do this well. Like that's one of my hearts for people is like I'm not the three, seven, eight type. Like I'm not always doing too much. I'm not always like, that isn't my natural personality bent. But for my friends who are all gifted, I'm like, and for pastors who I see when I know how hard it is, you know, I know how hard it is to make your life whole. I'm like, I want, like, I really like, I want them to be happy. I want them to be like, like my kids are two and four right now. And I'm like, I don't get this back. Yeah when I dropped him off at school and my daughter walks my kid to school and you get to watch it, you know, and it, if you're present enough, it just moves you like, but yeah. if I'm worried, it can't, if I'm, if I'm stressed, it can't do that. So I think that's such a good thing. And the book as a whole is, this is one of the most important elements for a, not just ministry success, but for a life that works, you know, which is like what I care about for people, you know, and what obviously you do too. Well, it's yeah. it's interesting. It's interesting, Kev, because I think for for like you know threes and sevens and eights, the 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 drive can be towards movement, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, you're a five, you know, and I, I imagine I imagine the drive can be towards information and research, mm-hmm. where you can you could lose yourself, you know, and have an idea, you know, like we were talking, and it just it hits, and for four months you're like, I'm locked in and an idea and I got to get this thing out. In my default personality, if I'm not self-aware, if I'm not growing, if I'm not acting with, you know, intentional courage, I'll tell people the world could be burning around me and I could just sit down and read a book or work on my sermon and I'm totally. good. I'm good. Like, I'm totally. just focused. Like, it's okay. fine. I, I, have, I have five emails to send, two meetings to prepare for. I should work on my sermon right now because it's just me and this and I know what I'm doing. Right, 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 right. It's, and it's, it's so fascinating because it's like one can, again, lose themselves in productivity with people. One can mm-hmm. be productive productivity with preaching one could be productivity you know and so that's the piece that i think you've been so helpful you know at is like again the awareness 
you know, and just that courageous intentionality to go, okay, again, why am I doing this? What's, what's beneath this? What's, what's going on here? And I think that you're so right because if, if we don't ask those questions, that two-year-old is going to become eight and that eight-year-old is going to become 16 and we're going to have missed it. I'll, I'll tell you this. A few years ago, I had the privilege to go to um, the Vatican and meet wow. the Pope. And it was a cool experience. But the night before we went um, and we hung out with the Pope's social media director, which is just awesome. He is the social media guy. Um, but the guy's a, a, a Catholic historian. So we go down to this great, great restaurant. And he's like, hey, uh, any questions you guys have on the Catholic Church? And I was like, yeah, man, I, I'm like – yeah, I can ask you anything. And, and this is before I knew, you know, about my mentor and, and stuff. So, uh, like, but I was, I was curious going, how do you, how do you make sense of like bad popes, like mm-hmm. Borgia, bad dude, like mm-hmm. married kids, like just bought the role. Like how, how do you make sense of that? And was that the one who did a self portrait that like that was his son. Look like that was his son. Okay, yeah, yeah. Caesar Borgia, Caesar Borgia, yeah. And um, Alexander Dumas, who wrote the 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 Three Musketeers, he wrote a book about um, inf- like these criminals, and he writes about uh, Caesar Borgia. Anyways, mm. this this guy says one of the most beautiful things, and you just alluded to it. He says we cannot bypass our history. Mm. We had some bad popes. We had some bad popes. Um, people who were far, far away from the heart and the soul of what we're all about. But the one redeeming outcome out of all of this is that a new, oftentimes out of bad popes, a new order was created. Mm, So the Jesuit order came out of the Borgia Mm. regime, like many number of years later, but it was like, he was saying like, the Jesuit order came out of response. I think when you're talking about this new imagination, I think we're talking about formation or this, this, I think a lot of it is in response to what mm-hmm. we are seeing um, happening in the last 25 years, you know, with the industrial complex, evangelicalism, religious right, all of that. I think there is something new mm-hmm. that is birthed. And I think the stuff that you've been talking about in leading into with imagine, I think there's just this, can we imagine a way that is both ancient and future? Can mm-hmm. we imagine a way that is true to the heart of this Middle Eastern rabbi. Can, mm-hmm. can we reimagine that? And so, um, so all that to say that that story just popped in my brain yeah. as you were saying that. No, that's great. You know, that's actually not everybody would get their reference, but the name imagine comes out of, you know, Brueggemann's imagination stuff. So good. But that's that when you first come across it, not just, you know, for a pastor, but I mean like for artists, for creatives, for anybody who's interested in building for the future and like, compassion work, anything his, you know, for people listening, Walter Brueggemann's an old Testament theologian. And he wrote a book called the prophetic imagination in 1978, which is crazy to think it was that long ago. And he wrote crazy. many other books with imagination in the title after, but his whole thing is like the prophet is the one who imagines an alternative future beyond the current order of things. And by doing so like invites new action in the present because imagination always comes before implementation. So for me looking over the edge and desiring to be a part of this entire legacy of this 2000 year history of the church, like Stanley Hauerwas says, we all hop on a moving train when we enter into the church. 
but to have the imagination to see beyond the current edge, like that is the reason why we named Imagine. Imagine is like, is it possible to stay rooted, but also imagine this next moment? That's it. Oh, we need it, man. And I think you, I think you're doing a great job with that. I think that is, that's definitely um, what our world needs more than ever right now. You know, you mentioned uh, Brennan Manning being like your, your or the godfather of grace. <laughs> and there's one story which in, in certain environments I will tell consistently about him. I don't know. I don't know if you've heard this story because someone told it to me personally, but years ago, and not everyone knows, but you know, and I think it was about Mariners a long time ago, but like Mariners was doing this big, uh, you know, like staff retreat. They probably had like 50, 60 people on staff whenever this was. And one of the people who worked there goes to the lead pastor and is like, hey, can we get Brandon Manning to do it? And I don't even know if the lead pastor knew who he was at the time. And he's like, oh, okay. And so my friend goes to talk to Brandon Manning. He's like, hey, Brandon, like, can you come do this retreat two to three days with pastors? Tells him about, like, you know, it's a big kind of evangelical mega church. And Brandon Manning says, I'll do the retreat under one condition. And my friend's like, all right, because he's already like, how do I probably, how do I tell the guy? What do I say? And he said, no one's allowed to bring their Bibles. And he said, because evangelicals can hide from God in their Bibles. And that could be expanded out. Christians, we can hide from God in our Bibles. And let me, to, to ask you a question, to expand out more, we can hide from God in our copious sermon notes. We can hide from God in all of the ministries we're signed up for. We can, Because we can hide from God in any religious activity. And when you think about being a leader, people in the church, how do you see this when we're talking about gaining clarity on the thing beneath the thing? Like, how does somebody in their belief in life with God, how can we use otherwise good things as a way of actually avoiding an honest encounter with God and an honest encounter with the depths of ourselves? Because it's not just this person's addict, this person struggles with addiction, this person does this. It's like the good things. Yeah. And you talk about this in your book can also become things we use to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's so good. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he says that all evil is is co-opted good, right? So mm. anything that's good, we can uh, that was created good, intended for good, imagined for good, we we can siphon out that good and co-opt it to kind of soothe, to escape, to make us feel worthy, to make us feel okay. I mean, it, this is this is just what is. Is what we do now. Now I think it's it's interesting. As in certain faith traditions, it's you know you have certain kind of leanings that make it easier. Um, you know the tradition I come from didn't celebrate Saturday um, on Holy Weekend. You know we'd have big Resurrection Sunday. We had big like Good Friday, and oftentimes we'd have Easter Sunday on Saturday because we needed the space in the auditorium, right? Mm -hmm. And so we 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 do whatever we can to bypass the desert. We do whatever we can mm -hmm. to bypass the waiting. And, and for many of us, like we've not been given the muscle, the opportunity to, to wait well. Mm. And so for many of us, we hate the weight or we waste the weight or we'll learn actually how to win the weight. And I, and I think mm -hmm. for many of us, we can waste the weight by doing stuff. Mm. We can hate the weight by running to stuff. Um, and I, I think it's just been learning for me just in the last couple of years, um, how often I bypass the desert, mm. how often I, 
you know, he, again, this goes back to, you know, question you asked a couple minutes ago, just about younger communicators being put up on stages. Um, did I want to actually deal with my trauma and abuse or did I want to go help people? That's the easiest question ever. I want to go help people. <laughs> do I, do I, do you know what I mean? Like, do I, do I, do I, do I want to actually work on the inner life because it feels selfish. That's the, that's the shame. Like I should be doing something. Um, and it's not, I know that, mm. but it felt that way in my twenties. I should be, and I'm going to miss out on my chance. I'm going to miss out on like where I should be. And, um, and again, all of that, you know, in the work I've done was often built around because people came up to me and said, I can't wait to see what God's going to do with you. Mm. I can't wait to see what, and just the pressure that that phrase put on me mm. at 16 and 18 mm. and 20. And so then I was like, I can't deal with this stuff. I got to keep going. And mm. so I, I think the, we, we all have to look at the socially acceptable and the socially unacceptable um, hideouts that we run to. What, what are, we all have golden calves, you know, Psalm 106, 20 says they exchange their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. And every day we're, we have the opportunities to exchange our glory. And it could be through buying another pair of sneakers. It could be through saying yes to one too many things. It could be to credit card debt. It could be with food. It could be with just trying to, you know, make it seem like I am holier than the next person. And I think uh, all we can use anything. We can gamify anything. We can sabotage anything and use anything to make us seem like we're okay. But it's not until we can really be honest and human and be like, oh, gosh, I did it again. I did it again. Yeah, it's, it seems almost oversimplified. But even like how, the, the however many years I've been thinking about this, I'm like, one of the most as you're moving into the second half of your life and as you're moving beyond like Christianity only as belief system or things I'm doing, but actual transformative encounter and experience. I'm like one of the most spiritually or emotionally mature things that we ever need to learn how to do is just feel our feelings. It just seems so bizarre to say that, but from seeing all these ways of escaping where it's like the putting together of both the cross and resurrection Friday and Sunday pain and joy and not seeing them as warring forces, but actually am integrating and embracing them both as wholeheartedly. That's why for me, when it comes to pain, I'm like, you don't have to enjoy it, but you do have to accept it. That's right. That's right. As a part of the journey. And in, in a, I have a chapter in, in the first book called feeling shitty. And it's just like, sometimes we have to just let ourselves feel shitty. And I, and I told this story where, you know, it's a Monday morning after who knows, like the first year and a half of imagining we're still meeting in our house. People are at our house late. I'm tired. You know, the next morning, I barely, I don't have any time to unwind really. The next morning I wake up, I'm just like, Oh, like I just feel shitty. And then all of a sudden my mind is like, is this whack? Like, am I lame? Like, is this going to happen? Like, what am I doing? We just risk everything to come out here. Like all of these different thoughts going on. Right. And I, and I, it was just this grounded in this feeling of like, I just feel like off and weird right now. And I could in that moment, all of a sudden it was like, we could do this. We could build that. But if we did this, 
in my mind, like I'm coming up with an idea so vivid. It almost feels like I did it. That's very much Enneagram five too. Like if I think about it enough, I did it. <laughs> you know, I don't even have to tell anybody. And then like 30 seconds into that, I'm like, Oh, you know what? When I am coming up with this idea, I didn't realize it when at first, but that was actually my ego was like contracting, avoiding. And I was using this as a way of actually just sitting with how I felt, which is like, yes, in that feeling of where I feel off beneath, like, is this lame? Is this working? There's a deeper question is like, and what am, is, what am I doing enough? And even beneath that, there's actually the essential question of like, am I enough? This isn't, I think it's about performance, but it's actually about identity. And that's why I say in that part, like you have to let yourself feel the hard parts long enough to fall through them and be grounded in the grace. That's like, this is all, it's all okay right now. But that part, just sitting with it is the hardest thing, but it's amazing how the thing beneath the thing, embracing pain and joy is a part of the same journey. You're giving people language and a map and the courage and the permission and the models to actually just start to do that. Yeah. yeah so yeah. much of it is just doing that. Yep. You know what yep. I mean? Totally. Totally. What my counselor says, you know, if it's his, if it's his, if you find yourself getting hysterical, hysterical, it's most likely historical. Right. Mm. And so like, so again, like we're just so unaware we're so disconnected. So all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's the, these feelings have movement to them. That's why they call them emotion, right? So like, and for many of us, when we can't get connected to the pain or the sadness or the, the premeditated resentments, which are just what <laughs> expectations are, you know, the, the, the disappointments, well, that's going to churn and channel and move somewhere, if you can't feel it and if you can learn to sit and just feel it, you, you will change, you will like respond differently. Again, if, if ever we react, we're just reenacting the past. Mm. And I think so often we have so many people who are just reenacting, playing the same script, running into the same familiar position, going to the same thing. So like efficient yet profoundly unaware. And yet when you can lean in and go, I mean, again, dude, you, you, you're asking the enough question. That's the question I'm asking right now. Like, what, mm. what is enough? Like, I'm in the middle of a mm. book launch. Like, what, what, how many podcasts are enough? Mm. How many speaking engagements are enough? Mm. How much money is enough for me to make? Mm. How much is enough? Mm. And, 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 you know, when you have 2020 hit and overnight, every speaking engagement for 20 weeks just gets canceled. Crazy. You know, all of a sudden you're like, it taps into the scarcity. Oh, there's only so much to go around. I don't, am I going to be able to prepare? And you could feel the internal. And there was just this moment where I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is actually giving me permission to behave in a way that's driven by scarcity rather than feel it, what you're talking about and actually have to wrestle and see this as an invitation to go, do I do I know what enough is? Mm. Can I name what enough is? Can I can I be honest that my ego says enough would should be this or I should mm. be here? But I but actually that's a that's an escape. That's avoiding the real thing. And mm. and just to be able to sit with it with spiritual directors or friends or counselors or mentors and just be able to like live with that. I'll tell you the motion and movement that comes out of that are healthier. 
after mm. I've been able to fall, like you said, into that grace, feel those feelings, lean into it. Because the other alternative is don't and just let somebody else drive the bus. Mm. And it's usually scarcity or fear or anxiety or worry or not enough. And it just, it, it's, it, I think that's what leads to the profound self-sabotage that we've been seeing. Mm. Yeah. And for even for people listening right now to hear, I mean, obviously we're talking about a lot of the content, a lot of the ideas, the exploration of the inner life that the book is such a helpful map for. That's why I really encourage people, if you're looking for a map, if you're starting to explore the inner life more or are wondering how to go about doing that, and you're looking for a framework to put it in, this book is like something that can be that and do that in such a with the beautiful simplicity that holds together the complexity, you know, that that's the gift of books like this. Kevin, you know? who's your, who's your favorite rapper of all time? Oh man. Favorite that's of all time. Good, I, I can't choose one. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Like, okay. My, who's like the my stand, MC? My, my standard, my standard top five is pretty unwavering. Jay-Z, Biggie, Nas, uh, Tupac and Eminem that okay, I'm like okay. really historical with all that yeah yeah that's great okay so who would be like if you were thinking about like Nas on uh, like Jay like who who would be who would be like the Fisher Price like and I don't mean that in like a negative Fisher Price but like in a sense of like an accessible like the first like the first artist to help prepare you for the depth of Nas or Jay or Biggie. Mm, who would, would I you, give them to prepare yeah, them for that? Yeah. 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 They, they weren't ready for it. I think I wouldn't choose a different artist. I would choose specific songs from Jay-Z of like, here's the intro of like, there's a lot of stuff he does that's so accessible. And now that you've had that, okay, here's the other stuff. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. The reason I say this, and this sounds self-serving, so like, but, but I, I, I in no way compare myself to your big five. Okay. At all, at all. But the hope for me when I wrote this was I just knew that oftentimes people wouldn't pick up a Thomas Merton. I didn't think people would pick up maybe a Pete Scazzaro right from the jump or, or a D will Dallas Willard right from the jump. But like, what could be a way that could just begin them to speak, step into the streams of, Oh yeah, what is happening in the inner life? What is mm. happening? You mm. know? And hopefully through that go, I, man, I, I need a Merton, you know, I, I need a K Swiss, Kevin Sweeney. Like I mm. need a Dallas. I need, I need to kind of engage with the rich Velotuses of the world, like just different voices mm. that are going to lead me in. So that's, that's where uh, I remember Blink-182 being interviewed once and they were asked to describe their sound and they said, we're the Fisher Price of punk rock. And I was like, mm. that's what I want to do when it comes to mm. the text, therapy and formation. How do I help people just feel like it can be done in a way with storytelling and accessibility? So I appreciate you saying no. what you just said. And also, and I really, that what you just described is how I felt once I saw, like when I started to read the book, I was like, that's what this is. Cool. But to your credit, here's, I want to say something else to that. I think what Steve just said about, you know, the Fisher price of punk rock, the Fisher price of like contemplative inner life, right? I totally get that metaphor. I think it's totally appropriate, but I also will say this, of course, if you go and read a Merton or read a roar or read other folks like that, there's a, there's a different complexity of talking about contemplation, talking about non-dual thought. Okay, great. 
but if you just read it, that's all conceptual. A map like this, even if you might see it as less detailed than something Aurora or Ken Wilbur or somebody might give you, but you don't actually need that many details to do the journey for yourself. That's right. That's you right. might be interested, like if you're like me, like a five, it's like, yeah, you want to know like, oh, this map is way more detailed. This one's this, okay, great. But if the point is incarnationally doing this, living this, not just learning it, but living it, not just believing it, but becoming it, then a map like this is actually all you need if you actually care about becoming more and not just learning. That's why the hard work you put into this is so helpful because of that. It's like, I know you, if, if you have a pastoral heart, you're not like, I want you to just think this about this, but at my best, what this really is, is a vision to be able to become more for yourself. So you don't fall when it's your time to do this. You can be more present to your kids. You can know what's driving you. So you can say no to the thing that might make you more money because you say yes to the truth of your own. Like that's the point that's right. of all of this. So I get the metaphor, but also if it's, if it's about doing the journey, this map is enough for everybody who's tuning in to be able to totally go on that journey for yourself. Nah, bro. So. That, it's so kind coming from you. And, you know, obviously I love you and the way that you, your mind works. It's just, it is a, a beautiful mind. And so, yeah, that's the hope is that it can be accessible and um, it can, it can be profoundly like uh, just deep for people as they, as they try to apply it to their life. So thanks, man. Last thought, you know, I, <clears throat> it's a unique, unique time for the church in the North America, the United States specifically. You know, there is a massive movement of pastors out of congregational life. So many churches are closing. I don't know if you know this, but you know, do you know who, do you follow or know Dan White Jr. at all? I know the name. I don't know. Yeah, he wrote like last book, like Love Over Fear. He helps lead V3, which is like a church planning yeah. movement with yeah, J.R. Yeah, yeah. Woodward. Yeah. yeah. He's like really quotable. Like his tweets are very like, he, he's a great guy. But he stepped out of congregational life for the first time in over 20 years recently and moved to Puerto Rico and, and started like a healing retreat center for burned out and traumatized pastors called Caneo. So he started like, I, Christine, my wife's on the board. Cool. It's like her, Chuck DeGrow, like Tara Beth Leach. And yeah, they have some great folks on there. And my wife just came off of a meeting actually right before I hopped on. But yes, like there's healing. There's all kinds of work. You, you know that more than most, you know, for people who are leading and what it does and how hard it is to just lead. Um, what? But with all of that, I think one of the compelling things, one of the amazing things, even though today we're talking about the inner life, Steve is a person who has so much energy, love, and hope for the world, which is, seems to be directly connected with his hope in the church. In the past two years, year and a half, have you stepped out of congregational life in the role that you've had? Obviously, you're still doing all kinds of you know, amazing things. In a concrete way, like what, what has been giving you hope the last two years? Hope for yourself, hope for the world, hope for the church. When are the, the concrete moments where you're like, no matter what, as forms change, like we're going to be okay. This is good. This is still okay. There's still more. Like what are those things for you that 
you know, do that. I know, I know it's not the Clippers, so there's got to be something concrete. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I don't know if it will be. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think there's a lot right now that is worthy of deconstruction. And so I think in some ways what has given me hope is, is seeing voices that, you know, weren't white males who are speaking up and I think are calling the church in and calling the church up. Like, I think that that gives me hope. I think what gives me hope is um, recognizing that, um, you know, when, when, when Caiaphas, who is the, you know, religious leader, um, they've got financial power. They have political power. They have positional power. They have religious power. Um, all because of their connections to Rome, their connections to the temple, their control over the people. But they don't have resurrection power. And all of a sudden, it's, it's from Lazarus being raised that all of a sudden, the fear begins to creep in. And they realize we can't stop this guy, so we should probably kill him. And, and, and I, I'm watching this happen because this, the, the power structures that have the financial power that have been built around certain agenda issues, the political power and the connection to it that has financial ramifications, you have all of these issues right now, and yet you have the emergence of other voices who have power um, not from a congregation but from a platform on Twitter or from a writing ability or from an ability to get in front of people. I mean, um, and you sit there and some of them are doing such profound good with it. And some are, some are, uh, maybe I would do it differently, but they would probably say <laughs> that same thing about me. But what I'm saying is power has changed. There is a new power that is now coming. Mm. Um, that, that gives me hope. That gives me hope. So um, I think, I think, uh, there is, it's, we, we are, uh, we are on the, the pathway of something that can be profoundly healthier, mm. holier, more humble and more mm. whole, um, with multiple voices, with multiple, um, streams of consciousness and thought, mm. um, centered, I think in, a, in, in Christ, mm. um, and there's going to be forces of resistance that don't want that. And I think just like there are some young communicators that have done the work and they will finish the race well, and there are some young gifted people who won't. I think that I think the those that are choosing wholeness and health and depth with Christ and formation, um, it's it's going to be diverse and it's going to be. Uh, probably smaller in some capacities, mm. but it's going to finish well. And it's mm. going to be a, a beautiful representation. I think of what the dream always was. Mm. Um, and I think the other, other pieces gonna, gonna die out like a VCR mm. and, and it's, you know, going to be something that people are like, remember that, remember that. And, um, and that's okay too. Cause mm. good things die. Mm. Um, and good things uh, come back to life. And mm. just like that uh, Catholic historian 
um, some new orders begin to take shape. Mm. And I think that's what we're, we're embarking in. And so that mm. gives me hope. Um, Absolutely. so yeah, it's, it's, uh, no, it's, it's just a both and bro. It's a both and so. So good, man. I love, I love that ending. And <clears throat> for people listening in, find Steve on Instagram at what is your handle? Is it Steve Ryan Carter on Instagram? Right. Yeah. Steve Ryan, Steve Carter. Ryan Carter, Steve Ryan Carter.com his latest book, the thing beneath the thing, Amazon, local bookstores, wherever you can find it. If, if for the joy, the peace and the life you want in your future 30 years from now will be largely determined by you going on the path that he's helping introduce you and encourage you to go on right now. And I really believe that so wholeheartedly. So check his book out, follow along with what he's doing. And also this was just for people listening who don't know, this was such a gift for me because Steve was one of the first, and in my life, we've had very different experiences. You know, one of the only older mentor figures who for, you know, a chapter in my life took the time to do some of the things with me that he described other people doing with him, which had huge ramifications, you know, which for me is such a great reminder of just the concreteness of real relationships with people and doing that. So I appreciate you so much. Go ahead. <laughs> real quick, you I know you gotta go get a haircut real quick, but you you're the one who got <laughs> away, bro. Like I, I promise, like I had I had such big dreams for for us together and and it was almost like a it's like a Ben Affleck moment, like where uh you know, in Goodwill Hunting where he's like, I'm going to show up one day and you're not going to be there and it's going to be awesome. And just like, just to see you. But you, know, you let, know. but you, you moved before I moved. Well, you were kind of, you had already, no, we, you were like going. Yeah, yeah. No, we were, <laughs> you, I was, I was, yeah. I was you, were, yeah. <laughs> you were checked out. So I'm like, all right, he's, he's gone. I'm out. So <laughs> <laughs> you were, you were physically about to move. I had already moved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Here's a five. Yeah. So, well, I love you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you. I love you, man. I appreciate the time. And, uh, yeah. Um, 2022 Clippers and Lakers for a second. It was kind of a rivalry. Now we've discovered that that's not actually a thing. So good luck this next year. (laughs) Later, man. Later, bro.